A family is left in devastating confusion by a phone call informing them that their mother, long dead, is helping people live longer, happier lives all around the world. How can this be? Rumors spread that scientists have cloned the matriarch and that the woman they love now has duplicates of herself around Europe. Still, another suspicion is that she's been shot into space, stuffed into a bomb and inserted with AIDS, suffering alone in some cold lab halfway around the planet. The stress of all this news cripples her children. But what is the truth? A young writer and scientist takes it upon herself to help the family reach the thrilling conclusion of their mother's story. The writer and scientist, Rebecca Sklut, and you're listening to part two, the conclusion of our deep dive into the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Let's get lit! Hey y'all, this is Kari. And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Woohoo! Alexis! Last week, before we dove into the first part of this book, <laughs> um, I introduced the theme of the week as medical murders. You got more of those today? You know Oh it. my goodness. That was plenty. Oof, that was too much already. So listeners, if you've listened for a while or if you're new with us, perhaps you know that each week we take a section of the show to discuss a topic inspired by the book. And this week's theme is Medical Misdeeds, part two. That's right. I'm changing the title of this theme because um, the forced hysterectomies that we discussed last week, those didn't always result in murder. I believe the theme that these all carry or the unifying thread, they're, they're unethical practices. Right. Um, so <clears throat> today uh, we're going to um, dive into one case particular in particular. Um, this book brought up a few throughout its length from beginning to end. A few cases you and I were aware of, some we weren't. So what I've never heard of were the pneumoencephalographic and skull x-ray studies in 100 epileptic. I didn't, well, I didn't know every institution was doing them, but I did know that was going on and it's horrific sounding. So in the book, uh, Rebecca brings out that uh, the home that Elsie was uh, living in because of her condition uh, would experiment on its patients. And Rebecca describes the practice as drilling a hole in the skull, filling that with helium to get a better um, image via x-ray. I did look into that and the practice does not necessarily involve drilling. In fact, some doctors were adamant that drilling is not involved. However, that said, this is still obviously unethical. It was done very, it was a p very painful practice. And because you're deemed insane. A lot of these people didn't have family visiting them. They're not going to use anesthesia on you because that's expensive. And they're, of course, not going to ask for your um, consent. I'm sick. Another case that was brought up in the beginning of this book, though, is what we're going to dive into today. So last week, if you listened to part one, you know, we talked about this Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis and what is called Mississippi appendectomies. This week, we're going to talk about the Baltimore lead paint study. 
Oh, okay. I remember this one. Okay. So my source on this is the New York Times. Um, so again, it's called the Baltimore Lead Paint Study. When do you believe this um, perhaps unethical study was conducted, Alexis? In the 70s and 80s. Uh, 1990. <laughs> <laughs> so researching this theme, I found a lot of these cases um, these questionable practices, these medical misdeeds happened in my lifetime, mm. including mm-hmm. this one. So who were involved? The unknowing, poor, mostly black children in Baltimore and their families. The lie they were told, it was basically a mission. Families were incentivized to stay in housing uh, that they could perhaps afford, that they would get assistance for. And they were never told or informed about the study that was being conducted on them. That's interesting because in the 90s in Wisconsin, they were also um, testing for lead and telling people they needed to repaint their homes if they tested for lead. Yeah. So they're, they're actually still testing for lead in a lot of old homes because lead was once used in paint. It, it was it made the paint color more vivid. Uh, and it made the paint last longer. So for durability and for those cute pops of color that we all love, they put some lead in the paint. They was like, go ahead, throw, <laughs> throw some lead in it. But kids be, it deteriorates and the kids be putting that in their mouth and oh, it be in their yeah. skin and their fingertips. Exactly. So in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, folks was like, oh, lead is toxic. And it's really harmful oh, as it deteriorates. Girl, over a hundred years ago, people mm. realized lead was toxic. And as you just said, Alexis, as it deteriorates, as it of course does in these old homes, you mm-hmm. know, people got attics and foyers, um, little parts of the house, not maybe not the foyer, but little parts of the house that are low traffic that they're not repainting. Mm-hmm. And even if they are repainting it, that paint, uh, fades away or wears away and then that lead paint is still, is still there, there. Yeah. and as it chips off it can start floating through the air kids you know kids just are nuts we'll start putting it in a mouth as yeah. it chips away dogs yep. you know yep. not yep. cats though because they're brilliant right shout out to our producer <laughs> uh, Zara, the I love her too yep mm-hmm. so however <laughs> even though everyone knew lead was toxic the debating um, they started debating the effect of lead in homes um, because removing that lead, removing that paint, making that a service that needed to be provided for public safety. Hey, that's expensive. <laughs> it's always about money. <laughs> so um, I don't remember. But why were they telling the people to go into these homes and live there? <laughs> so I'll get I'll get there. So in 1978, lead was finally banned um, for use in residential homes nationwide throughout the states. So you can't have lead in your home start in 1978. Once lead paint was made basically illegal, many properties that were painted with lead still remained, of course, especially in Baltimore or lower income areas, eventually leaving the painted walls that were not properly remodeled to decay and thus allow the lead to be released as chips and dust, as we said, um, bringing more harm, especially to children, pets, and of course, to the people who live in those homes. Thus, authorities wondered, how do we remove lead? How do we lessen its effects? It cost effectively. <laughs> Can we have a coupon? <laughs> so this is what they did. Okay, great. They brought in the Kennedy Krieger Institute or KKI. 
You know, mm-hmm. once they start being just one initial off, you know, they ain't no good. <laughs> so um, KKI is the initialism. And it's a branch of Johns Hopkins that provides medical <laughs> care, rehabilitation and research, especially emphasizing research geared toward children with learning and physical disabilities. So that's what they do. They like your children got neurological um, you know, disorders. Bring them to us. We got it. Uh, questionable. <laughs> we the KKI. <laughs> so, questionable practices. Have they yet been held accountable? Girl, we go get to it. You asking all the right questions. <laughs> so the KKI sought to observe how much lead accumulated in young children after lower cost abatement practices were implemented. So abatement is a term you hear a lot uh, regarding lead paint. And it's a way of not completely removing it, but just lessening the effect of lead. And there are different ways to do that. So I won't get into the specific practice, but some ways are more expensive and some ways are lower cost. So in these low income housing, in this low income neighborhood, they use the low cost method of abatement and several others. But, you know, they wasn't spending a lot. And they was like, well, let's see how these poor people do. If the poor people do OK, then the rest of society um, can uh, use this abatement practice. Wow. But let's okay. test on the poor blacks first. I see that. Okay. So starting in 1993, a total of 107 properties were categorized by degree of need of repair. So maybe my house is just really old. You know, it's been a rental for a while or the homeowners um, just can't afford to do a complete remodel of a house because that's just always been expensive. Right, that's expensive. You know, we clean and stuff, but some of our paint is chipping. Right. You know, we don't think that's a priority. You know, we like to eat every day because we crazy. (laughs) Exactly. We be wanting to eat every day, wear clean clothes. The paint got to wait. Well, what we don't know is that this paint has lead in it. Lead is toxic because, you know, we never studied that in school. We studied a lot of stuff. We know a lot of stuff. We ain't studied paint. Um, so starting in 1993, KKI recruited families to live in these homes as test subjects. <laughs> what? So a lot of these homes are empty. And the KKI was like, look, we have a place for you to live. Yes. And here are some incentives so that you can move your family in here. And you, you know, you're going through some tough times. It's expensive to be poor. Okay. So someone's going to help you out. Of course you're going to take that. That means my baby can go to the schooling that I want them to go to. Because Mm -hmm. now we're not spending a billion dollars on a home, a place to live. Mm. Thank you, KKI. (laughs) Where they are where. So... In the end, 140 children were evaluated from the families recruited. Again, 107 properties, 140 children. And Kennedy Krieger helped landlords get public financing for eliminating lead and encouraged them to rent the premises to families with young children. So KKI was like, look, we'll help you abate the lead. Also, if you could start uh, renting to families that's got a lot of kids, because that would help our study. We fully know what we're doing and we're okay with it because we got to make sure middle class and upper class people are safe. So children already living in the houses were encouraged to remain. Alexis, you got a better job. Mm -hmm. You ready to move out? Yeah. Yeah, Don't you want your baby to go to a good school? I don't know if you know how (laughs) school ain't never free. I know people think it's free for y'all, but y'all got to pay too. Oh my goodness. So maybe just stay a couple more years. That's Mm. just my advice. I don't know. 
So that's what they was telling people. They were even encouraged to stay. Yeah. Encourage people to stay in these lead filled homes so that their blood could be analyzed. Mm. So blood tests were taken periodically and they didn't say why they were taking the test necessarily. They did give a reason, but it did not involve a lead study, a nationwide study on lead. Mm. Uh, If the lead levels were pleasing, then authorities knew that the abatement method worked. So they're like, okay, you're in category one. The abatement method we used in your home seems to be working. Then they study me and my family and my kids jumping off the walls, you know. <laughs> the <lead laughs> poison is- they getting a D at recess. And so the studies, are, <laughs> the scientists are like, okay, you in category two. And obviously what we used in your house, water and a toothbrush, that don't work. <laughs> So, uh, oh right. Goodness. If lead levels were deemed too high, the abatement method didn't work. And just as a reminder, y'all, lead is toxic, period, full stop. Mm. Follow-up measures were to be made every couple of years after to track how the lead concentration changed in the children. Not to treat the children, not to move the people out of the home, but to keep those kids in there and every couple of years see how worse they got. Now my kids... <laughs> <laughs> tripping and falling on the way to school. They not even making it to recess. They write that down and they Goodness. say, bye, Mrs. Uh, Herrera. See you. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I going to do with these dumb children? Okay. <laughs> I want to give you guys an example as I did last week. Sus- um, Suzanne Shapiro, the lawyer for Katina Higgins, is a name you should remember. Both Katina and Suzanne. Um, Katina is one of the mothers who filed a suit, a lawsuit, of course, Uh, When she and her four-year-old son, Myron, moved into a rented house at 1906 East Federal Street, the lead in Myron's blood was at a safe level and his mother knew nothing about the study. So, of course, healthy children were moving in and they were leaving with neurological issues that they would carry for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So a lawsuit filed. Mrs. Shapiro, the lawyer, said that a a month later, Myron's blood contained excessive lead. It did not take long. And that he had since had neurological problems. Wow. After she moved in, the lawyer says, Kennedy Krieger enrolled her in the study and she signed the informed consent, but no one ever told her, hey, it's lead in your house and it can cause brain damage. The contract was not forthcoming. Not the contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're yeah. not giving all the details. Mm-hmm. So the fallout. <sighs> After the study ended, many poor African-American children ended up with these long-term neurological disabilities as a result, often incurring permanent nervous damage. The families and children suffered, therefore, from the study. They were not benefited at all. Was that a hypocritic oath? Hmm, (laughs) Hypocritical. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the Hippocratic oath, you do no harm. Um, A lot of these scientists were doctors. These are scientists affiliated in medicine. They took that oath but they were doing harm. These subjects did not benefit from the study. And comparisons, of course, were made to the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study. Due to the similar affected demographic group, you're again targeting poor black people again. And this time in the 90s, we got rap music now. We tolerate the blacks. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Lack of clear and explicit consent to participate in each study was collected. Uh, Lack of adequate care provided during each study was given. Mm. And the long-term devastating impact of the study's condition on the subject's quality of life 
this is just like Tuskegee people saying, mm-hmm. both in the law um, field and other scientists, other people in medicine. So a class action lawsuit, as I brought up, was filed in 2001 against the KKI. <laughs> and the defense argued. So the KKI was like, listen, listen, listen. The study did not actually put the subjects at risk since the administrators of the study only reduced lead content and collected blood rather than explicitly inducing lead poisoning in children. And the parents ultimately still had the choice to live elsewhere. So, yeah, we we incentivized them to move into these low income areas and we didn't tell them we would study on them. Um, but listen, they was poor. They was probably going to listen where we lead anyway. It ain't like we was directly injecting their children with lead. Everybody wow. calm down. Dang, leave us alone. Where wow. are free snacks? This is their defense. Oh, my goodness. It was argued by the defense that the target population against the poor and black again itself would still have a higher chance of exposure to lead poisoning, regardless whether the study was implemented or not. So, yeah, we told you not to move out. Okay. <laughs> but you're poor and it's hard not to be poor. And a lot of p- places you was going to live was going to have lead. That's what they defense. <laughs> That's offensive. <laughs> their, their defense is offensive. <laughs> Therefore, any of the techniques that proved effective and low cost would benefit more of the population in the long run. So thank you for your service, poor blacks. Are you happy now? Yeah, but my kids went sick when they hey, went in. I said, thank you. What more could you possibly want? Oh, y'all so needy. I want a healthy child. Relatively healthy child, okay? The court challenged the acceptable level of risk in pediatric research studies. This is a 2001 decision. And it's really difficult, as we'll learn in the Henrietta Lacks um, biography or book, not really a biography, but the story told uh, by Rebecca Skloot. It's really difficult for law, for the legislative fields to come in and tell medical scientists what is ethical and not. Because as a commoner, yeah, maybe I had a polio vaccine as a kid, but also as a commoner, as a civilian, as somebody that don't know nothing about medicine, person. I don't want you stealing pieces of my body and making money off of it. Stop yeah. that. And we'll get there. So I might benefit from it. I don't necessarily understand why. And also, I want to keep benefiting from it. But also, <laughs> if you making money, how come I can't make money since it's my body? I get sticky. Really tricky. Apparently. Yeah. Mm. But back to the lead. So the court is like, this feels wrong. <laughs> And that's all we're going to say on that. We don't feel comfortable, like, you know, saying too much. Actually, it's interesting because this has gone through a lot of appeals and a few courts have touched it. Some have sided with the medical practitioners, the KKI. Others are like, hey, y'all, open your eyes. This is wrong. (laughs) It's wrong. In fact, uh, one court openly criticized Maryland's Court of Appeals um, and that's the court that likened it to Tuskegee. It was like, it's just like Tuskegee for these four reasons. So um, neither researchers nor patients, Judge Cathal said, have the legal right to put healthy children into a study that offers them no benefit. No benefit. These just, subjects do not benefit at all. And the hazard is real. Just hazard. It only offers hazards. And this is the final statement I'll say from um, Dr. Goldstein, we were not trying to put children in houses and watch them get lead poisoned. Oh, we did not expect anyone to get lead poisoned. And I'll pause here because they did um, work out those abatement tactics. So they had these categories. They gave them each a different abatement tactic to try to lessen the effect of lead. And he is saying they didn't expect anyone to get they expected all these tactics to work. 
But when you found out they had led, you didn't do anything. He's got an answer for you, oh, Alexis. Okay. He says the point was to show in a neighborhood where 95% of the houses contain lead and 35% of the kids have lead poisoning, that with some repairs, you could move into a house like this and stay and not get lead poisoned. He added, for the majority of kids in the study, lead levels did go down. To compare this to Tuskegee makes no sense. So he missed the point. And that is medical <laughs> misdeeds. And one question to ask is, why didn't the scientists just test on their own kids? And with that, <laughs> are you ready to take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, let's do it. And we're back. Alexis, last week you gave us a great look into who Rebecca is, why she chose this story. Um, you also gave us a spoiler-free synopsis of the book. We talked about who would love the book. Those who really love that narrative um, that's also anthropological, like Isabel Wilkerson's, um, who's the, the writer of The Warmth of Other Suns and mm-hmm. Cass. She does a great job with that. If you love her writing, we think you'll love this book. Are we ready then to just dive into part two of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? I think so. Let's do it. On a hazy day in 1973, in a brown brick row house five doors down from her own, Babette Lacks sat at her friend Gardenia's dining room table. Gardenia's brother-in-law was in town from Washington, D.C., and they all just finished having lunch. As Gardenia clanked dishes in the kitchen, her brother-in-law asked Babette what she did for a living. When she told him she was a patient aide at Baltimore City Hospital, he said, really, I work at the National Cancer Institute. They talked about medicine and gardenia's plants, which covered the windows and counters. Those things would die in my house, Babette said, and they laughed. Where are you from anyway? He asked. North Baltimore. No kidding. Me too. What's your last name? Well, it was Cooper, but my married name is Lax. Your last name is Lax? Yeah. Why? It's funny, he said. I've been working with these cells in my lab for years, and I just read this article that said they came from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. I've never heard that name anywhere else. Babette laughed. Ha! My mother-in-law is Henrietta Lacks, but I know you're not talking about her. She's been dead almost 25 years. Henrietta Lacks is your mother-in-law? He asked, suddenly excited. Did she die of cervical cancer? Babette stopped smiling and snapped. How'd you know that? Those cells in my lab have to be hers, he said. They're from a black woman named Henrietta Lacks who died of cervical cancer at Hopkins in the 50s. What? Babette yelled, jumping up from her chair. What do you mean you got her cells in your lab? He held his hand up like, whoa, wait a minute. I ordered them from a supplier just like everyone else. What do you mean everyone else? Babette snapped. What supplier who's got cells from my mother-in-law? It was a nightmare. She read in the paper about the syphilis study at Tuskegee, which had just been stopped by the government after 40 years. And now here was Gardenia's brother-in-law saying Hopkins had part of Henrietta alive and scientists everywhere were doing research on her and the family had no idea. It was like all those terrifying stories she heard about Hopkins her whole life were suddenly true and happening to her. If they're doing research on Henrietta, she thought, It's only a matter of time before they come for Henrietta's children and maybe her grandchildren. 
Gardenia's brother-in-law told Bobette that Henrietta's cells have been all over the news lately because they've been causing problems by contaminating other cultures. But Bobette just kept shaking her head and saying, how come nobody told her family part of her was still alive? I wish I knew, he said. Like most researchers, he never thought about whether the woman behind Gila cells had given them voluntarily. Babette excused herself and ran home, bursting through the screen door into the kitchen, yelling for Lawrence, part of your mother is alive. It's alive. Lawrence called her father to tell him what Babette had heard and Day didn't know what to think. Henrietta's alive, he thought. It didn't make sense. He'd seen her body at the funeral in Clover himself. Did they go dig it up? Or maybe they did something to her during that autopsy. Lawrence called the main switchboard at Hopkins saying, I'm calling you about my mother, Henrietta Lacks. You got some of her alive in there. When the operator couldn't find a record of a patient named Henrietta Lacks in the hospital, Lawrence hung up and didn't know who else to call. So, you know, the Lacks family found out their mother's cells were, bit, were alive by chance. Just by chance. No one said, ma'am, family, we've used your mother's cells and this is how we're... no one ever did that. They just found, happened to find out. So shortly after they find out, Lawrence decides that's the oldest brother. He's going to call Hopkins to find out about his mother's cells being alive. And he doesn't really get a response out of that. They're like, what you talking about, Joe? <laughs> so who's that, uh, Margaret? Oh, just another crazy Negro. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they was doing, right? Because the family was always calling and what was they telling them? Listen, these people born in the South maybe got one year of education, maybe two in a formal schooling. And they're told that their mother's cells are still alive. No one's saying this is a cell. Here's a diagram. Exactly. All of us needed to be taught what a cell was. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that fortunate experience. And then they were told that their mother, who died when they were little, it's still alive in space and bombs all over the world. Thank you for your contribution. Bye. And they're like, wait a second. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm going to call down to the Jones Hopkins and go get my mama. They got her in there. <laughs> it's not funny, but it is. <laughs> you got to laugh to keep from crying. What in the world? My mom is still alive. Hey, y'all, don't be poor. Just don't be. Don't do it. If you have the option. Because they will mistreat you. (laughs) Yeah. If you have the option, as all poor people do, don't do it. (laughs) Just don't. (laughs) Listen, meanwhile, the researchers gathered at Yale while he was calling and stuff. And for the first international workshop on human gene mapping. And they talked about how to stop this HeLa contamination, which we mentioned um, in in part one. Yeah, because HeLa is a very... Do, do I want to say invasive? Invasive? Invasive, yes. So if you're in a lab and you have cells from something else and that lab also has HeLa cells, them HeLa cells will find their way over, start wrapping to them other cells. And like, Why me and you just be me. And the other cells be like, okay. And then all you got is HeLa cells. <laughs> so the answer was to find genetic markers specific to Henrietta so they could identify which cells were which. Okay, that's the answer. And that made complete sense to me because that scientist that accidentally mixed HeLa cells with other cells and then found out how many chromosomes we should all have. They're like, well, just kind of do that. Right. <laughs> but instead use. Yeah. See, see what really makes HeLa cells HeLa so that, you know, if they've uh, contaminated 
your supply. Right. And so this will require genetic information from the children. They are at a conference, y'all, talking about how to test the children. Yeah, let's do this. So one of the scientists (laughs) present was Victor McCusick. Victor McCusick is one of the doctors, the scientists that revealed in um, um, the uh, published document that HeLa cells were from Henrietta Lacks. That's what happened. So he offered to help. Because he um, he knew that Henrietta's husband and children were still patients at Hopkins. He was also connected to Hopkins. He could access their medical records and contact them. And so he did. So what makes sense to you? Give him a call, explain the whole situation. Now the family will be in the know and they can voluntarily submit to. That makes sense, doesn't it? So this is a problem, right? Because no one wants to do something that isn't their job. And for Mm. the doctor, that ain't his job. He's got other things to do. Mm. So the best option to me is to just rummage through their records and see what you can (laughs) find without ever having to contact them. I'm sorry. Is that wrong? It's staying within the medical field. Now there's patients, whatever confidentiality, but they still need the blood, though. So but he was like, well, let's look through the records first. We'll find some. We didn't find nothing. Let's go get their blood. They needed the blood in order to find those genetic markers, though, because they needed to examine, put it under a microscope and like, okay, this is the same. This is the same. This is I don't like any of this. I also want cures for whatever you can cure me of. Mm -hmm. You can't have it all. Question. If they were like, we found a cure from cancer. However, (sighs) to make it, we got to talk to somebody's crotchety grandpa. We all got crotchety grandpas (laughs) and we need one of his fingers. So either we could go ask him as we've done every year and he says no, or we could tell him to come in for a checkup and we'll cut off one of his fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Which would you want them to do? Now you would say, I am shocked you even suggested it. And then you slip him a note that said, go and do what what your best mind tell you. (laughs) So it's like, it's hard. So listen, he had this postdoctoral fellow, which is um, somebody with a PhD that's gone beyond and still working and whatnot. And her name was Susan Shu. She reached out to Day and asked if they could draw blood. And Day, Day, which was Henrietta's husband, husband, would later say, they said, they got my wife. She part alive. They've been doing experiments on her and they wanted us to come tested children to see if they got that cancer that killed their mother. Shu, which is the one that made the call today, she denied that she would have said anything about testing for cancer because one, that's not what she do. And two, there was no test for cancer at the time. And I think two things can be true. He could have been like, you want us to come and give blood. Why? So you can see if they got, because that's what they said when they took the autopsy that they wanted to see which was also a lie, uh, which was a flat out lie. If um, the children would have something that Henrietta had and then they would know ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so she, he could have asked her if that's what she was doing. And she could have said, and she has a strong accent. She is um, Asian. I don't know where from China, from China. OK, mm-hmm. so she's Chinese and he's from the deep south with little schooling. And I could see there being some things lost in translation. Yep. Definitely. Because she's like, I never said that, but maybe you imply that this had something to do with cancer and his brain put the pieces together. And that's where From they previous went. previous conversations. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So there, though, those barriers were there. 
There were, however, guidelines that should have been followed. And I'm by McCusick and Shu, the National Institution of Health or NIH, said that all human subject research funded by them require both informed consent and approval from a Hopkins review board. And those guidelines were implemented in 1966. Now we're well into the 70s by this point. And so that was um, implemented after Southam, remember him, the one that was trying to oh, inject yeah. the Jews um, with cancer. And he did inject a whole bunch of patients with cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll, I'll never forget him. Yeah. So a day he told his children, come on down to the house and they're going to come over and they're going to test everybody for cancer if they got cancer. Now, as you mentioned, it probably was logical to him. Zakaria was angry. He had those anger issues that they refused to attribute to the abuse he received. But he attributed them, though, to the abuse, right? Or he yeah, was at he least did. angry. Mm-hmm. Um, also, pronouncing Zachariah Zachariah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Don't Isn't you it love beautiful? that? I like the name. I really do. Zachariah. Because mm-hmm. I like Zachariah. Yeah. So now we I got like Zachariah. I, mm, I just love it. Yeah, brilliant. Um. So then and also Deborah at the time was about 24 years of age. And so and she had a couple of children. So for her, the worry was there. Her mom died young because she died young. So, you know, people were into it. It's like, yeah, let's get us all tested and find out if we had the same thing that killed our mother. Yes. So Deborah would um, then call the hospital after they drew the blood and be like asking for the test results. Hey, are my results in? And they was like, girl, that don't even exist. Bye. Exactly. She's like, wait, what? I'm waiting for my test results. And she waited for years. Now, I've had friends who have waited for lumps to be studied and it usually takes a week. Now it can take like three days. It's really fast. And they'll let you know if any cancerous cells were found in that mass. That is a high stress few days for yeah. everyone involved. Mm-hmm. OK, yeah. for you and all your friends and family who know about it. We yeah. all like, oh, what is it? What they going to find? Yeah. This woman is waiting for years to know if she has the cancer that killed her mother. And ain't nobody even testing for that. Yeah. Nobody's testing for it. And then Deborah also knew. So they're saying we don't know what you're talking about. But she also knew that um, Hopkins had these stories of snatching black people. She had recently read about the Tuskegee Institute in Jet. Um, her cousin was like, I wor- used to work there. I went in the basement. They had rabbits as big as people. Ooh, it was scary in there. <laughs> yeah. She knew about Southam. <laughs> she heard these stories. So she started wondering if maybe they, instead of taking blood, were they actually injecting them with the same blood that killed their mother? This is doing something to her psychologically, you know? And some of what she was saying sounds crazy, but then some of the truth is crazy. Like the the lead testing on children that we Mm -hmm. talked about. If you said, you know, don't live, if you told a friend, don't be going in them poor houses in Baltimore because they tested on the kids and, you know, folks be walking in with healthy kids and then leave with babies who got neurological problems for the rest of their life. You would be like, shut up, Auntie May. You always say something. And it's true. It is some truth in all the little stories that are going around. Some truth in that. So she starts asking her father questions and about what happened to her mother. And he answers or kind of confirms the fears that she had. And the father said, Henrietta didn't seem sick. 
But then all of a sudden, I took her to the hospital and she started doing all these treatments. Her stomach turned black as coal and she died. That's what he knew. Meanwhile, him being in the streets either aggravated her disease or at least made her suffer more while she had it. But but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So Sadie, one of the cousins, Henrietta's cousin, said the same thing. Um, but when she asked what kind of cancer her mother had, what treatment she had and what part of her was still alive, nobody knew because they didn't understand and no one was explaining it to them. Then um, Deborah received a call about giving more blood. She was like, since the family don't have answers, I'm going to go down and get some answers from these people that's taking the blood. So she thought, again, she was being tested for cancer. She didn't know anything about the California researchers about that initial um, meeting or conference where they were deciding, listen, we need to get some genetic testing from the family. When Deborah went to the doctors um, to Hopkins to have blood drawn, on June 24th, 1974, it was four days before the new federal law went into effect requiring institutional review board approval and informed consent for all federally funded research, which this was. Mm-hmm. It would later be clarified to include blood draws. Doctors were like, how can you include blood draws? I don't got nothing to do with it. That's and just- they said, watch this. They did the usher. Watch this. <laughs> Include blood draws specifically. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. When Henrietta met with McCusick, again, the scientist that released the mom's name in the published document for the medical book, she asked all the questions, but he didn't answer them. It's so weird. He just was like, no. Yeah. He was like, I wrote this book book and I'll sign the inside. Bye. (laughs) You got an autographed copy of my book. Look at you. Not only that, it's a picture on your mom in here. Wait, what? How'd you even get this picture? Yeah, she wanted to know how they got the picture. And it's possible that Henriette, the gynecologist, Dr. Jones, would have asked her for a picture and she would have, Henrietta would have gave them the picture. So that's what they came to because the family doesn't recall giving her a picture at all. Well, let's move on. Part two. Um, In March of 1976, a Rolling Stone article by Michael Rogers hit the newsstands. Michael Rogers was a journalist. And he was the first person to try to help the family understand Henrietta's contribution. His article was the first time mainstream media, again, when McCusick and Jones really published that document, it was for the medical community. Right. So this was the first time mainstream media would get this information that a black woman was behind the HeLa cells and her name was Henrietta Lacks. The revelation happened when news of the testicular Gigi Institute study was still fresh. The Black Panthers were setting up free clinics because they saw the healthcare system was racist. They saw this story as whites, again, taking advantage of blacks. Um, Rogers article caught the attention of other journalists who contacted the Lacks family. His completed article also revealed that HeLa cells could be ordered through commercial businesses for as little as $25 a vial. And with this article, the Lax brothers became convinced that Dr. George Guy, the one who actually took the cultured the cells and Johns Hopkins had stolen their mother's cells and made millions off of them. Because Henrietta was not the first person that they stole. I'm going to say stole because they didn't ask for consent. Stole cells from. I don't think it was racially motivated. And there are other examples in this book of people of all different backgrounds 
who have parts of them stolen. And we'll talk about them. Mm-hmm. Just ask. Mm-hmm. Just ask. And their families were never um, informed or compensated either. So it's not like the medical field discriminates in this particular case. They'll steal anybody's anything. And now today anybody's. they have the legal backing to do it. Anybody's anything. And we all benefit sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so the the truth behind the money making portion is that guy didn't make money off of the that sales. That wasn't his intent. Folks was asking for sales and he was like, I'll send you five uh, million tomorrow. That's Just it. pay for the shipping. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> pay for the shipping. <laughs> Literally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hopkins um issued various statements saying they didn't make any money off of it. It was a research hospital. So mm-hmm. that they just just taking stuff mm-hmm. because they felt like they could. If you remember earlier, these are poor people and poor people kind of owe us because they yeah. come in and they're being treated for free. Yeah, this is their unknowing payment. Yeah. Um, it would be other organizations who would find a way to profit off the sale of Hila. In fact, one organization sold Hila products for as little as 100 and as much as $10,000. But of course, the family never knew this. Well, as mentioned, Deborah's brothers, particularly Lawrence and Sonny, wanted to get paid by Hopkins and Guy for any profit they made from Hila. Deborah, however, she didn't want to fight Hopkins. She felt like if Hila was helping people, that's great. That's wonderful. What she wanted is for her mother to get the recognition she deserved for such a great contribution. She also wanted to learn as much as she could about her mother's sales. So what did she do? She got a textbook, a science textbook, a dictionary and a journal. Mm -hmm. And she was convinced her mother's sales were stolen and that her father didn't sign any paper authorizing the taking of her mother's sales. And while Deborah didn't fully understand sales, she wanted to learn more and she worked hard to learn more. more. And what she did learn scared her. Mm-hmm. She once read, this is kind of <laughs> some of the stuff Kari mentioned. She once read in a news article that scientists had crossed HeLa cells with tobacco cells. And she thought that... Um, Folks was rolling her mama up and smoking her. <laughs> created a human plant muster. That was half her mama. Yep. I, I felt like your pause, your pregnant pause there was judgy, but I'll let you rock. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just saying. What is she supposed sit to say? with that. That's the person that does not understand what Some, is going on. All, right? Exactly. Yeah. She learned that scientists had used HeLa cells to study AIDS and Ebola. Deborah would imagine that her mother was suffering from the symptoms of each disease yeah she believed that her mother was affected just by anything that was done to the cells that's her mother like what were you saying going off into space space. yeah to see if they would die um out of the earth's atmosphere they did not because hela cells don't stop can't stop won't stop um because they're cancer cells Mm -hmm. which that's also something deborah doesn't know now is that these aren't just healthy pieces of her mother these are the cancer cells that killed her mother right that's what they're studying. Yeah. And so one thing that bothered Deborah, even knowing all of this information, is that her mother was not getting credit and she wanted her mother to get credit. Then McCusick and Shu published the results of their study mm-hmm. or the um, California based study where they got the different additional genetic information. The blood from the kids and the, and the husband <laughs> in the science um, magazine and their publication 
ID'd the family. So we got Henrietta Lacks. We got her husband. We got child one. We got child two. And it created a map of Henrietta's DNA that scientists could use to help identify HeLa cells in culture. So they could see, oh, this is the HeLa cell. This testing is this. And this is a Joe Blow cell. That testing is that. So they mm-hmm. could differentiate them. Having your genetic information published could lead to a loss of health insurance or employment discrimination. Excuse me. Yeah. Employment yeah. discrimination. Yeah. So the thing is, let's say someone read that journal and they were like, what's your name, Alexis? I see you applied for the position mm-hmm. and you need insurance. And you're like, I'm Alexis Lacks. They like the famous cancer Lacks. Oh, uh, we can't offer you insurance. Yep. yep just so yep. you know. Also, don't work here. We might catch the cancer. That's <laughs> how people think. Anyway, true. Listen, today, HIPAA is supposed to stop that. I think some things might get through, but HIPAA is supposed to stop that. And when you break those HIPAA, um, that act, anything against that, you are held accountable, punishable. Hundreds of thousands of dollars are fined. So a few months ago, a a group of people were like, that's a HIPAA violation whenever you ask them if they're vaccinated. (laughs) Not a HIPAA violation. So two things can be true. (laughs) If an employer asks you if you're vaccinated with the intention of perhaps uh, withdrawing your employment status because you're not vaccinated, although they may have the right to do that these days because we're facing a pandemic. Uh that knowledge and using that knowledge to withdraw employment, I, I could see that being a HIPAA violation. But it isn't, and they've okayed it. So yeah. that's what we are they proving. They're making on. rules and saying, but this don't apply. This don't apply. Because we want to do it right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So you might think at this mm. point, the Lax family needs a lawyer, right? They should get somebody. They need some uh, help. They needed to understand how they were being used so that they can get the financial gain that everybody else was getting, right? Yeah. Let's take a brief break from their story and look at some cases. Oh, cliffhanger. Okay, Alexis. Part three. <laughs> so the same year that Mike Rogers' Rolling Stone article was published and the Lacks um, family found out they were buying and selling their mother's sales, a man named John Moore got sick and he found out he had hairy cell leukemia which was a rare and deadly cancer. Moore was referred to a cancer researcher, Dr. Gold, and he's at UCLA. The doctor told him his spleen needed to be removed and Moore agreed. Okay. And he signed a form saying that the hospital could dispose of any severed tissue or member by cremation. Moore went home, but had to return to LA um, from Seattle for follow-up exams, and that was between 1976 and 1983. And that was every few months he was flying to L.A. from Seattle. Go was taking um, bone marrow. He was taking blood and he was taking semen. You ever seen them needles they used to take bone marrow? Yeah. Yikes. So he's doing this periodically. Every three months. And routinely. Mm-hmm. Poor from guy. 76 to 83. Mm. So after years of flying from Seattle to L.A. again, great distances here. Every few months, Moore was like, you know what? I should be able to do this in Seattle. Why I got to fly out to L.A. to do this? This is stupid. So he asked the doctor, like, do I got to keep doing this? And the doctor was like, listen, I'll fly you out first class and put you up at the Ritz-Carlton. Are you happy now? And Moore was like, why you want to do all the What? What's going on? Right. (laughs) 
so he went out. And then in 1983, he was asked to sign a new conform set. The consent form said, I do, do not make a selection, voluntarily grant University of California all rights. I or my heirs may have in any sale line or any other potential product which might be developed from the blood and or bone marrow obtained from me. More selected, I do. He didn't want to, you know. Rock the boat. This is a doctor he's been trusting for years. He's like, this is a new form, but I'll sign it because I trust you. And not only that, you know what? And I'm drunk from the first class champagne. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and not only that, you know, I, I don't know. I might put myself at risk if I damage my relationship with this doctor of, you know, being sick again. And I don't want that. So when he was given a similar form at the next visit, more signed. I do not consent. So Gold started calling him up like, hey, hey, hey. Now, Alexis, so <laughs> he, he either did, he signed, I do not. He signed, I do yeah, not. Okay, so he signed, I do not, left the clinic. When he got to his parents' house, I think. Yep. Just a d- short drive away. Yep, 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 yep. The doctor had already called maybe twice. Yep. Like, hey, you, you signed this wrong. Ha <laughs> ha, we know it's a mistake. Just come on back and sign it right. He was like, I know I got some meetings. I got to go back home. I can't come back. (laughs) Then the doctor started uh, calling his house. States away. Mm -hmm. Sent them letters. And finally, exasperated, the doctor said, stop being a pain and sign this letter. Sign this form. And then Moore was like, wow, I'm getting a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And the lawyer learned that Gold had developed and marketed a cell like a cell called Mo. Yeah, after the pa- named after the patient. Named the patient after the like patient. every time I come in your office, you putting your arm around me, asking me how my do how I'm doing, how my how the job, how the family. And meanwhile, <laughs> when I leave, you writing Mo making me Mo money. Ha ha ha. He's like, this is dehumanizing. <laughs> yeah, that's what he you said. You mean you're not my friend? Yeah, we are not your friends. We just want your insides. Oh man, <laughs> that's hard. Yeah, go then gold had filed a patent for more sales and was prepared to enter an agreement into a two agreement with a biotech company that gave him stocks and financing worth more than 3.5 million commercially to commercially develop and scientifically investigated the mole cell line. The market value was estimated to be $3 billion. Mm-hmm. More sued gold and UCLA for deceit and using his body in research without consent. He also claimed property right over his tissues. Gold sued them for stealing them mm-hmm. that they stole. You stole. That's what he has said. Mm-hmm. So this went to court, right? And mm-hmm. you just know the result, right? Mm-hmm. No, you don't. <laughs> After nearly seven years in the court system, the Supreme Court of California ruled a Against Moore. It had gone back and forth. Now it's at the Supreme Court of California and they ruled against Moore. Yeah, they were like, so if I go through your trash and I find something that's valuable to me, you're going to sue me and say it belonged to you? No. Once you are out of that office and your refuse is with the doctor, maybe it's your sales, maybe it's whatever. The doctor can do whatever they want with it. Cause people making money off of it. People are, and not just a, not just a few monies, a lot of money. And every time I have a bologna sandwich, I'm gonna just be mad. Like <laughs> this could be steak and frites. 
that's huge though, right? It's that's huge. huge. But that was the court ruling. Court, however, did agree that there wasn't any conform- informed consent because Gold didn't disclose his financial interest and that Gold had taken advantage um, of his position and violated patient trust. Poor behavior and back on the part of Gold, the scientist. Mm. The court said that researchers should disclose financial interest in patient tissues and that there needs to be some regulation for patient protection and tissue research. The court further said that a ruling in Moore's favor might destroy the economic incentive to conduct important medical research and giving patients property rights in their tissues might hinder research by restricting access to the necessary raw material. So if I give you power over self, you might affect research and what we can come up with in the future. So you can't have it. For the greater good. Another quick case. Ted Salvin, he was a hemophiliac. In 1950s, the only treatment for a hemophiliac was blood transfusions. And those blood transfusions weren't screened as they are today for diseases. So <laughs> Salvin was exposed to hepatitis B over and over again. And he didn't know until decades later. When it was revealed through blood tests that his body was producing something extremely valuable, his doctor told him. Salvin contacted labs and pharmaceutical companies and directly asked them if they wanted to buy his. He was like, I'm in the business of me. You want some of this business? (laughs) That's right. I like his hustle. Yeah. And he started selling (laughs) serum for um, $10 a milliliter, which is a pretty small fraction, up to 500 milliliters per order. Salvin wanted to somebody to cure hepatitis B and through his effort efforts, the first hepatitis B vaccine was created. Salvin even started his own company and recruited other patients who had valuable blood so that they too could sell their blood. So would a lawyer have been helpful to the Lax family? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it might not, it might have just introduced additional stress into their lives that led nowhere, which is probably the case. Yeah. Really what they need is a teacher, someone to just explain Educate to them, them. Mm-hmm. in layman's terms what's going on. Yeah. Well, Some let's patient um, advocacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A champion. Yeah. Let's jump back to the Lax family. Part four. Mm. All right. Deborah is now on a mission to get her mother's name, the recognition it deserves. Deborah learned um, as Henrietta's next of kin that she could request a copy of her mother's medical records from Hopkins to learn about her death. Deborah didn't do it because she was afraid of what she would learn and how it might affect her. Then in 1985, a reporter named Michael Gold published a book called A Conspiracy of Sales, One Woman's Important Legacy and the Medical Scandal It Caused. Deborah somehow got a copy. They don't the family doesn't recall how. In the book, Gold directly quoted from Henrietta's medical records and no one in the family had seen or given Hopkins permission to release the medical records. Yeah. You'll remember that after that conference, he was like, Oh, they, they patients at Johns Hopkins. I'll just go get their stuff and share it with y'all. That's right. <laughs> that was happening. Mm-hmm. 
So Gold, though, as the journalist, should have actually contacted the family and let them know this information was going to be published, maybe even asking questions about it. But whose job is that? As a journalist, his job? Not necessarily. If this is public record, I don't have to contact everyone involved in this public record to let them know I'm publishing this article. I have deadlines to meet. Also, if it's published and it's now public knowledge, then whoever published it should have received consent from the family her medical records weren't published that's where he got that he has source material for his article he got that from the doctors from Mm. the scientists he called them up they had long conversations and this is what they said (laughs) to him they would in fact say oh i don't remember talking to that man her records aren't Uh. published publicly that you can't do that even then that wasn't common to do no but there are medical journals but they're not releasing your medical records. Yeah. And that is completely different. Yeah, it'll say so subject he, A, subject B. This was a detailed accounting of yeah. her, her medical condition and everything about it. Something the family had no knowledge about. He should have contacted the family as a respectable journalist to say such and such. He mm-hmm. didn't do that. They don't care. And in fact, he pretty much said he didn't yeah. when he said, no, I was just, trying to throw in some human interest piece in it (laughs) that's it Mm -hmm. so listen that's it her medical records were just very detailed of course because they're medical records but it kind of talks about the amount of tumors that it spread all over her body and organs for a child reading this about their mother it's very graphic Mm -hmm. her body was filled with tumors so um the family had a reaction um it was hard to read and it was unexpected. So Deborah had a nightmare. Yeah. Messed with her psyche. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She fell apart. Nights of um, crying and days of crying, imagining the pain that her mother was experiencing as she died um, or suffered from this condition. Mm-hmm. She couldn't sleep thinking about her mother um, on the table during the autopsy. Cause oh, that let's is not going to that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't with that one. When Rebecca Skloot, Asked Gold how he got the records. He said he had a long conversation with Dr. Kusick, as I mentioned, and the gynecologist. Yeah. When Rebecca asked Dr. Jones about him, he said, I don't know who Gold is. I don't know who him. But the man (laughs) got him from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Anyway, more than 30 years after Henrietta's death, research on HeLa cells finally helped uncover how her cancer started and why her cells never died. So in 1984, a German virologist discovered a new strain of sexually transmitted virus called the human papilloma Lover. virus mm-hmm. 18, HPV 18. You heard of it, of right? Of course. Mm-hmm. The virologist believed that the HPV 18 and HPV 16, also his discovery, caused cervical cancer. When they tested Henrietta's cells, they learned that she was infected with multiple copies of HPV 18. There are more than 100 strands of HPV. Um, 13 lead to cervical, anal, oral, and penile cancer. Back in 2009, 90% of all sexually active adults became infected with at least one strand during their lifetime. Mm -hmm. HPV inserts its DNA into the DNA of the person where it produces proteins that lead to cancer. And when... They block the HPV DNA, cervical uh, cancer cells stop being cancerous. Okay. 
So learning this will lead to the development of an HPV vaccine and a Nobel Prize for the virologist. So she had this HPV, right? Mm -hmm. And that HPV kind of spread throughout her body. Mm -hmm. And if they had a vaccine for it, it would have stopped it because this HPV has a blocker in it. Mm -hmm. So Henrietta's cancer started when HPV was inserted into its DNA and her 11th chromosome was essentially turned off that stopped um, the virus suppressor. Yeah, the tumor suppressor. So it's like HPV, get in the car, it's going to pull out the brakes and just run all over everything unless your body can stop that car. Right. But she, from her husband, had acquired both gonorrhea, syphilis, who knows what else, and this uh, virus that led HPV. to cancer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So all the breaks was gone. Yeah. Long gone. There was nothing. Yeah. Because she had so many other STDs in her system, her body didn't, wasn't able to fight it off. Part five. In mm-hmm. 1996, the BBC started making a documentary about Henrietta. This is like great, right? Because now her mom is finally going to get recognized. When they arrived in Baltimore, Deborah knew now that the world would learn the true story about her mom and she would be able to move on. The BBC covered the Lacks family story in more depth than anyone. The BBC followed Deborah to Atlanta for a conference organized by Roland Patillo. You remember him? Yeah, he's the Morehouse doctor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he cared. Patillo would petition the city of Atlanta to name October 11th Henrietta Lacks Day and the city would agree. The BBC also went to Turner Station where Day and Henrietta were raising their children and asked about life in the 40s and 50s. And that's when they met Courtney Speed, if you remember her from the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, she, that's when she learned about Henrietta Lacks for the first time. Speed, along with several other women, then um, founded had founded the Turner Station Heritage Committee where they organized events to bring attention to black people from Turner Station, who contributed to good things in the world. And Speed and her crew reached out to the Smithsonian. Um, they created a fund to raise money to create a wax figure for Henrietta. They founded the Lax Health History Museum. They even invited the women, um, invited women to help George Guy with Henrietta Sells to come and speak. They got a group of um, Missouri, uh, they got a Maryland representative to pay tribute to Henrietta. Yeah, they was like, oh, for Henrietta. Yeah. And then so there's this buzz in the air. People are talking about it. People are hearing about it. Enter Sir Lord Keenan Keister Cofield. He was somehow related to the family down the line, but nobody really knows for sure. Listen, Cofield presented I don't think he himself. was related to anybody. That's what they said. It was a, um, somebody's husband's stepdaughter's Whatever. cousin and whatnot. He probably had a conch <laughs> and like a tight yellow suit. Go down to his knees, the jacket dude. And he was like, monorail, monorail, monorail. <laughs> and I was like, we're going to sue Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. He presented himself as a lawyer with the intention of helping the family. He said Deborah needed to protect herself. And copyright her mama's name. Hmm. Cofield told Deborah Hopkins was guilty of medical malpractice and it was time to get paid. Paid, I say. <laughs> he was a contingency lawyer. He only got paid if they got paid. The family wanted a lawyer and finally had one they could afford, right? Because he wasn't going to charge them, right? Deborah and 
introduced Cofield to Speed and her group as the family lawyer, as the family's lawyer. Cofield was the first to tell the family anything specific about what happened to Henrietta Hopkins. He confirmed for the family everything they thought bad about the situation. He then told Henry, excuse me, he then told Deborah he needed to read his, her mother's medical records to investigate how doctors treated her so he could investigate malpractice. So together, he and Deborah go down to Hopkins to get the records, but the copy machine is broken, right? And so they come back later. Actually, he comes back later. When he comes back later, the doctor staff is like, you can have these medical records. You ain't related. <laughs> he told them, I am Sir Laura Keenan Keister COVID. And they was like, that's four titles. We're calling the police. (laughs) (laughs) You a lord, you a sir, you the sir lord president of the. (laughs) It was too much. Yeah. Chief officer operating as the. Yeah. So they told the Hopkins attorney and he researched Cofield and found that this man was a scam artist. And the family didn't know this about him. And when Cofield was out, he made the Lax family their life a nightmare. Mm -hmm. He started filing frivolous suits. This was really stressing Deborah out. And she went and accused Speed of conspiring with Cofield. Speed said, I'm getting the same lawsuits you get. Mm -hmm. But Cofield left an impression on the family and they didn't trust anyone after that. They just felt like And they never got a lawyer again. Out to get them. Yeah. Yeah. And this affected her so much. She, it just left her and home in a dark place, right? A lot of stuff happened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, when the stress of Cofield finally cooled, she would get her mother mother's medical records and read them. And she would learn that her sister was committed to a mental institution called Crownsville. Mm-hmm. Deborah started worrying about all the bad things that could have happened to her sister. And she then called the facility to try to get the medical records and was told they were destroyed. But she believed Crownsville had something to hide. And after Deborah called Crownsville, she had broke out in hives all over her body. So she was checked into a hospital. She had a nervous breakdown. And the a doctor. A stroke too, right? Yeah. She nearly had a stroke. And then that's when Rebecca shows up. Mm-hmm. Like, ma'am, we don't have time for this. Too much has happened in their life. Rebecca comes in right at this moment. So that's it's when like, she answered the phone and she sounded kind of out of it. She was like, she was out of it. I'm not here for this. I I don't need it in my life. I don't want it. Yeah. So part six, Holfield had really affected Deborah's trust. As I said, she felt everyone was working for Hopkins to keep information from the family. So Rebecca was always being put to the test, always trying to look, what is your real purpose? Who's paying you? Yeah. She's Rebecca's like, look, I got student loans and credit card debt. So no one. Busted car ride yeah. through the community. So it's like, Ooh. and they just didn't believe it. Like, mm-hmm. what's your incentive? Yeah. She kept her at arm's length. Rebecca told um, Deborah about a cancer researcher named Christoph who felt sorry of how about how Hopkins treated the family and invited the family to come to the lab to see what Gila cells looked like. He wanted to tell the family what Gila meant to him as a young cancer researcher mm-hmm. and how he, um, and he wanted to tell them how grateful he was for his mother's, their mother's donation. He wanted to acknowledge the family that contributed. Mm-hmm. The qu- family wasn't quite ready for that visit, but Deborah and her brother would eventually go. Kristoff. Um, he also told them they should be getting paid, which I thought was a little much. He did. He did. He's like, you see all this money? You should get it. And I was like, doctor, <laughs> come on. 
Christoph would explain in a way. Um, he would explain in a way that the siblings could understand. He would let them see Gila through a microscope. He even showed them a catalog as <laughs> where they were selling her cells for $167. Said, All this money should be yours. Mm-hmm. But it left the family pleased and kind of satisfied with the visit. Mm-hmm. And I think that was important. Rebecca would later take Deborah to Crownsville, where by chance and with the help of a hospital director, she would retrieve the autopsy report for her sister, Elsie, and a picture. The photo was heartbreaking because it really revealed some abuse that was going on in the facility. Yeah, I mean, this is a very special moment in the book because the um, manager of the facility, there's like a top guy and then one guy that's like in charge of all the paperwork, but he was a historian. So once he heard what their purpose was, that they wanted to dive into the history of this girl's family, of Deborah's family, this woman's family, um, he was like, look, all the records should be uh, destroyed, but let me just go through what we have and we'll see. And then the, it's like it jumps off the page, Elsie's name. Yeah. And Deborah's like, that's my sister. And he was like, I'm really surprised anything about her is in here. So he turns to the page that should be covering Elsie and he expects a couple sentences and there's a photo and he holds it to his chest. And he's like, I've never seen a photo in one of these records. And he puts it on the table. And there's her sister with her tongue out, her eyes bulged and white hands around her neck. Um, so it's like either some of them was trying to choke Elsie or trying to hold her head up. But they obviously I mean, it's hard being a caregiver. I don't want to put too much blame on people. I don't know. I don't know what was done there. But obviously uh, her sister was not happy where she was. Mm-hmm. And um, that breaks Deborah's heart. Yeah. But she's ecstatic to see so much information, including a photo of her sister. And they copy it all for her. Yeah. Um, Rebecca would also learn that the patients at Crownville were used for research without the consent of family. Mm-hmm. So in, in 2009, uh, the book was finished, right? All the work Rebecca had put in was finally compiled and was ready for publishment. Publish, publishing was ready for publishing. Rebecca reached out to Deborah to tell her the book was completed and Deborah wanted Rebecca to come to Baltimore, read it to her, talk her through the hard parts. She called Deborah several times, but Deborah didn't answer. Which is very unlike Deborah. Mm -hmm. On May 21st, 2009, after leaving many messages, she called again, but the voicemail was full. So she called Sonny. She was like, Sonny, tell your sister, quit playing and call me back. Mm -hmm. Sonny told Rebecca that Deborah had a heart attack just after Mother's Day. The Lax brothers would pick up Deborah's fight to get her mother the recognition um, she so deserved. Especially Sunny. Yeah. And that brings us to the end of the story. All right. Let's take a quick break. Sounds good. And we're back. So Kari, what's the final verdict? And would you recommend this book? So as you said, this has been on your to be read to be read list for a million years. And I'm so happy we finally got to it. Um, from beginning to end, I was thoroughly engrossed in this manner of storytelling. Uh, the story taught me so much, um, not just about medical atrocities, 
but just about these people's lives and the footprint that Henrietta unknowingly left behind, um, not just through her cells, but through her children, um, how one situation can just stay with a family, how what we do affects other people. It was a good reminder of that. And so I highly recommend this book. It is both entertaining in a way, but also edifying in many more ways. Um, and for that, I thought Rebecca did a great job just taking her time learning these people and respectfully approaching their story. Great job, Rebecca. Highly recommend your book. What about you, Alexis? What did you think of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? And would you recommend this book? Yeah, I'm so glad I finally like lifted it up and said, yeah, let's read that. <laughs> Dusted it off. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really, really good read. I like the science that I learned in it. Mm-hmm. I She tells a really good technical story with the human piece in it. I like how that was infused together and um, it just really made for a really good story mm-hmm. and um, having her retell the interactions with each person in the book I thought that was um, heartwarming yeah yeah and, and sincere right I think she really did sincerely approach this story her interest from such a young age carried through as she her concern for people. Yeah. And her Rebecca's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her respect for this family and her mother's contribution. There's even a part where she has an argument with Deborah and Deborah's like, don't you print this in your book? And she doesn't. That that part that they argued about, she just tells us there was a piece. Deborah didn't want to print it and she wasn't gonna print it because Deborah didn't want it printed. Deborah didn't believe her, but Rebecca was true to her word in every case. And there are also parts when she could have been cruel about um Deborah's situation and she wasn't. She approached it with Human eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I Empathy. like that. So you got the science and the the science and the compassion, which doesn't often go together yeah. in one story. And I love that. So I would definitely recommend it. All right. So what are we reading next week, Alexis? Everything, Everything by Nicola Yoon. Oh, I can't wait. I've read this once um, on my way to Maui because it has a part that takes place in Maui. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be fun to read it again. It's a YA book part love story, part drama. So I look forward to that next week. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll see you next Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. We love y'all too. Also leave a five-star review for us on Spotify. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit litsocietypod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read something.